Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. You'll recall that the RMM Bible reading plan puts the first half of chapter 12 with the whole of chapter 11. So if you're looking for commentary on verses 1 to 21 of chapter 12, you'll need to go back one episode. In that episode, we see the announcement of the final plague, and we hear the instructions that God gives to Moses as to how the event of the Passover is to be commemorated forever among the people of God. In verse 22 of chapter 12, we return to the actual narrative of the night that changed the world. Moses went out from the presence of God, and called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. We re enter the story now at verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Moses continues in his instructions to the elders, saying, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever." So here you see that Moses is combining his instructions for the actual evening ahead and the future commemoration of this evening through the ritual of Passover. Everything here has this double focus. We're talking about a night that will become the centerpiece of a whole new walk with God. That's the balance. That's the tension in biblical faith. The moment matters, and so does the life of obedience and worship that follows. We see that immediately in verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. To bow the head is to say, I submit, I agree I accept. The people understand what this service will be saying, and they receive that. They own that in faith, and they agree to transmit that to their children. They will preserve this odd right, and they will capitalize on its essential oddity in order to teach the essence of their faith to the next generation. That's very important for us to see. Remember, the ultimate purpose of this entire drama is to prepare people to see and recognize Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Douglas Stewart makes that point explicitly in his commentary on this passage. He says, The ultimate purpose of the Old Testament Passover instruction is to point forward to Christ, to the purpose of his death, memorialized in the ritual of the Lord's Supper that now replaces the Passover and also to the unity of those accepted by him as his people, 
his body, closed quote. So that's why these instructions take up so much word count in the story. God wanted them precisely this way. He wanted it done precisely this way so that when Jesus finally came, they could point to him as one and say with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the plan. And that was the purpose behind these fairly elaborate instructions. Verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, the narrative of the actual 10th plague that we've just read there is surprisingly brief. As I mentioned, the buildup and the instructions about how the event was to be commemorated were surprisingly long and elaborate, but but here now the event itself is told with the barest of detail. God did it. He did what he said he would do. He came in wrath and judgment, and only those who had taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb were spared. And it's important to notice that God did this personally and intimately. The Lord struck down all all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. This reminds me of that verse in Genesis about the flood. Noah built a boat and invited people to take shelter inside. But then when the hour came, it was the Lord who shut the door. Only God can act in this way, and only God does act in this way. Now, some of us struggle here. Jesus talks so much about turning the other cheek and loving our enemies that we wonder if God is acting appropriately here. Is is God being Christian here, if we can ask the question that way? And of course, the answer is that he is. He is acting appropriately to his own character and sovereign majesty as the one holy God over all creation. You see, there are some things God can do that we can't do. And it isn't as though retributive justice is wrong, per se. It is just that it is wrong for you to seek retributive justice and to effect retributive justice by your own hand. The Bible makes that very clear. In Romans 12, 19, the Bible says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, There is retributive justice. I will repay, says the Lord. And here we see him doing that very thing. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we were told about a pharaoh and a whole people who participated in an unthinkable act of genocide. It was wrong. It was horrific. It was evil. And God saw. And now he is acting simultaneously to save and to judge. That's how God works. That's who God is. Old Testament and New. It is understanding this that allows us to act as Christians. It is often said that Christians can be pacifists because God isn't. Do you hear that? Do you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying? Let me try and say that another way. Christians can be meek and merciful because God sees all, remembers all, and repays all. That's what I'm saying. All sin will be paid for. There will be justice. Right? That justice will take place in the body of Christ on the cross or in the body of the person who committed the act in question. So here, in this story, every house was covered in blood. 
either the blood of the firstborn child or the blood of the Passover lamb. Those are our choices, Old Testament and New. Verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The last Pharaoh to be blessed by a Jew was the Pharaoh who was blessed by Jacob at the end of the book of Genesis. A great many years have passed since then, and much water under the bridge. But here again, we see the seed of Abraham mediating the blessings of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. The Hebrew seems to indicate the Egyptian people hurried the Israelites out of the land. They pressured them to go. So not only are the Israelites allowed to go, the people of Egypt en masse are pressuring them to leave. Go now. Take some money. Here are your wages. Go, lest we all perish. That's the sense. Again, just a reminder that God knows how to restore what the enemy has taken. He is in no one's debt, and he is just. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Let's just pause briefly here. The format of this program does not allow us to go too deeply into any of these potential controversies. So let me just say that there is a lot of work being done by scholars and linguists here on how the ancient Hebrews used and understood these sorts of numbers. Most scholars now don't think that this Hebrew word aleph means thousands. They think it means something more like families or clans or units so, for example, one linguist that I read on this says that the word appears to have originally referred to the number of fighting men produced by a single village. The ancient Israelites mustered according to village units, which he said likely numbered around 12 people, 12 men on average. So 600 of these units, 600 times 12, actually equals about 7,200 men plus women and children. So we may be looking at a group of about 30,000 people in total. Now, obviously, this is not a matter of church discipline. You, you can probably translate this word three or four different ways within the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. But it is helpful to remember that we are dealing with an ancient culture and an ancient language that we are still working at understanding. So what we have here is a large group. Exactly how large is difficult to say. However, we can say that it also included people who were not Israelites by birth. We see that very clearly in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. 
because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So let's just remember that Israel has always been about more than physical descent from Abraham. The Apostle Paul is eager to make that point in the New Testament, and we are seeing why right here. Obviously, a lot of other people saw what God was doing and joined themselves by faith to the covenant community. We assume here that a large number of Cushites, for example, joined in with the escaping Israelites. Moses is said to have taken a second wife from among the Cushites. So that's worth remembering also. This was a diverse group, united by faith in the promises of God. Verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Most of the commentaries that I read all make the same point here. The text is trying to communicate that the actual Passover night marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. That's what's being communicated by that that very night language. Whether it was so many years to the day is neither here nor there. It may have been, but that's not the point. The point is that their time as slaves in Egypt came to an end that very night. And so this is a night of watching and remembering. The future Israelites would keep a nighttime festival to remember the moment of their glorious liberation. Verse 43, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, if we take these verses collectively in terms of what they say about who may eat, the sense that we get is that this is a communion meal. It is exclusively for those who have joined themselves to the covenant community. It is not for people who are just passing through. So verse 48 makes it clear that foreigners can eat of it if they join the community. If they believe and get circumcised, even slaves can eat of it. Rich and poor can eat of it if they have formally joined themselves to the covenant community. It is, or at least it is supposed to be, the same with the new covenant communion meal of the Lord's Supper. It is for those who have formally identified with the body of Christ. It is not for passers through. Of course, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, but it does matter whether you are in or out. This is for for us. This is a family meal. This is for the brothers and sisters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Thanks be to God.
And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.